Well, one of the most popular Christian books of our generation has been Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. It was written in 2002, and, and this book tackled the big question. The subtitle is, What on Earth Am I Here For? Now, in the 20-plus years since its publishing, there have been more than 50 million copies that have been sold. And I think this book was so popular because it speaks to some of the biggest questions that our heart has as followers of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we might come to faith in Christ and kind of wonder, like, what now? Like, what am I supposed to do? What is God's plan for my life? Now, I've been in ministry a, a, a fair amount of time. It's been about 17 years in total, and I, I've been asked this question hundreds of times. Usually, it's in the form of something like, how do I know that I'm living in line with God's will for my life? Right? How do I know God's will and to know that I'm actually doing it? We're on this path of God, and we want to make sure that we stay on that right path. And so we agonize over our decisions. Which job offer to take? What city to move to? Who to marry? Right? The list goes on and on. And because it's, it's out of honor, we want to honor God, and we want to make sure that we're not disobedient to him with our lives. But when we try to answer that question, I, I don't know about you, but in my life, it's often felt like I'm navigating it blindly. God may have opened so many doors for us, but we feel paralyzed because we don't know which is the, you know, quote-unquote right door to go through. We might go to the scriptures to try to find an answer, but then are disappointed because the scriptures don't really give us clarity on what decision to make because we're, we're trying to get the Bible to do something it wasn't meant to do. Because right? the Bible's a story. It tells us that plan and that arc of God's redemptive history. But we'd much rather treat the Bible like a manual, right? telling us what to do in step one, and step two, step three, until we've completed the project of life. Well, if you've been anywhere like that, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you this morning. Now, the good news is, as we're continuing our look through the spiritual disciplines, we're going to be examining a spiritual discipline called guidance. And, and I think guidance can help us grapple uh, individually and corporately with some of these big questions of direction in our life of faith. Now, the bad news in that is I, I don't have any concrete, foolproof way for you to know without fail the direction of God. If you're looking for a formula to get your answers, I think you're going to be disappointed. But I do believe that this practice can give us insight. This practice of guidance can help us gain the confidence to listen to God, to listen to the Holy Spirit, and discern the paths that he's put before us. So this morning, I want to define guidance for us. You know, when I first read the title um, of the chapter, um, when I th what I initially thought of guidance was, was like mentorship. So how is guidance different than something like mentorship or discipleship? Uh, I want to then give a, a biblical case study for how we can see this discipline in action in the early church. And then I want to give some characteristics of guidance and close with, some, uh, close with some concrete examples of what this could look like in our lives. So let's jump into it. So, you know, a moment ago I said that when I initially saw guidance, I was thinking of mentorship, thinking of discipleship. Uh, and, and, you know, discipleship is this command that comes from Jesus. This is Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It's the Great Commission. 
Um, Jesus tells his, he tells his disciples to, that they should make other disciples into the world, that they're to pass the good news on, to teach, to baptize those who follow his ways. And so that's kind of when I was, uh, again, outlining what this was going to look like before I started reading Foster's chapter, that's kind of where my mind was going. But as I read this chapter of, of Foster's book, I realized that's not what he's getting at. Because discipleship is a focus on teaching. Right? It's, it's about instructing believers to, to learn the teachings of Jesus Christ, to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Guidance, I would suggest, has a greater focus on listening. It's us trying to listen to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so guidance is less about instruction and more about listening. Richard Foster put it this way. Um, this is kind of the, the definition that I'm working with. Guidance acknowledges the direct, active, immediate leading of the Holy Spirit together. And that emphasis of together being italicized is his. Is his. In other words, what guidance seeks to address is the question how does God lead his people? What we would call the body of Christ. Now what Foster's definition assumes is a, is a number of things. It's, it, there's an assumption that the Holy Spirit has direct communication. That God is speaking directly to us. That the Holy Spirit is active in communication, that he is proactively, you know, throwing down lines of communication. Remember that metaphor that I used last week of the radio, that God is constantly broadcasting. The Holy Spirit is immediate in his communication, that there, there's no lag time, right? God doesn't need to go back to committee to give you an answer or find an out outcome. There's no feedback loop. And lastly, that the leading of the Holy Spirit is something that we receive together. Now, when we think of guidance, and admittedly, my introduction kind of focused on this side of guidance, we, we often think about how does this affect me privately, right? What decision should I make? And there is an element of that. But I think it's important that we, don't that we separate ourselves or try to take a step back from the culture in which we live, which is so focused on individualism, so focused on personal faith, personal communication with God, right? That the earliest believers knew that this was something they perceived together, that when they genuinely gathered in the name of Jesus, that his will could be discerned. So I'm going to give you an example of what this corporate discipline looked like in the scriptures. So if, you, if you'd open your Bibles, whether you have one or your phones or the pew Bibles that are in there, let's look at Acts chapter 15 together. Now Acts chapter 15, we won't be here too long, but Acts 5, chapter 15 was, I would say, the first major conflict in the life of the church. Uh, there were other tussles before this here and there, but th this conflict was one that threatened very early on in the church's infancy to just split the church, to divide it, predominantly along ethnic lines. So hopefully you've had a chance to find that. Let me start by reading Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So this takes place uh, in the city, initially in the city of Antioch. Paul and Barnabas uh, had been sent out from Antioch. We see this in, in Acts chapter 13, which is another actually great place where they're worshiping the Lord and they receive this word from the Lord, set aside, you know, Paul and Barnabas to, to go out for me. So they've gone out this missionary and come back and they're back in Antioch. They're sharing testimony of what God has done. And the text says that some of these Jewish Christians right, from the heart of Israel come to Antioch, which is in Syria, and they start teaching that if you really want to be a Christian, right, it's great that you've put your faith in Jesus, but if you really want to be a Christian, you need to be circumcised. Now, to summarize the next few verses, you could feel free to skim it. Paul and Barnabas con- confront this teaching. They say that this is false, and the, the church of Antioch says, all right, this is some pretty significant, you know, digression between these two perspectives. Uh, they, they send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to investigate it further. So they get to Jerusalem. They start sharing stories of all the ways that God has been working in the communities of the Gentiles, right? And the Gentiles are those people who, i.e., are not Jewish. And we see in verse 5 some Pharisees, which, again, these are the, the Jewish Christian religious leaders. They rose up and they made the same argument we saw in verse 1. If you want to be a faithful Christian, you've got to be circumcised. Right? So you've got to keep the law of Moses. Pause here for a second, because this is something that we take for granted. I think it's very rare in churches in the 21st century, especially in America, that we recognize, I guess it's rare to think that we're still bound by the entirety of the Old Testament law. Not only do we have thousands of years of church experience and teaching, but we have the inspired writings of Paul and others in the New Testament. Who, who talk about, discuss this freedom that we have in Christ. I mean, when, when this Council of Jerusalem happened, prob- I, I don't know if any of the, the New Testament epistles would have been written by that point in time. I'm, I'm not sure the exact dates. Maybe one or two of them. But not, not circulated in our scriptures the way that we have them right now. And so if we put ourselves in the shoes of those earliest believers, they're trying to figure out precisely what salvation in Christ meant. And so it's no wonder that these Jewish Christians were so staunch in their camp that to follow Jesus meant that you had to follow the Mosaic law as well, right? Because they recognized, they they came from this backdrop, this culture of Judaism, that they saw Jesus as their Messiah, the fulfillment of their national hope. And so, of course, in their mind, Jesus would encourage the followers to, to faithfulness in God, which to them was defined by obeying the Torah, following the law of God. Look at verse 6 through 11. I'll read it. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter's saying, look, they've experienced the power of God in the same way that we have once we put our faith in Jesus. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So verse 6 has these, this gathering begins with this elders and apostles gathering together. And this is the first church 
council. Right? Representatives from a variety of cities have come to Jerusalem with their own flavors of Christianity to try to resolve this conflict. Peter, who was, as we know, one of the closest followers of Jesus, stands up and gives his testimony. I imagine that maybe this is here as he's sharing this, he's recounting his, his story with uh, Cornelius. That's the in Acts, uh, I'm not sure, maybe chapter 11. I, I, I should have looked that up, but you know, he has this, this uh, vision where uh, a sheet descends with all these unclean animals and says, take and eat, and Peter's like, poor heavens no, Lord, I've never eaten any of that stuff. And God says, why do you call unclean that which were common, that which I have cleansed? And then he goes on the heels of that and is invited to share the gospel with the Gentile, Cornelius. So I imagine he probably would have shared some of that it was an important moment in Peter's life where some of that ethnocentrism of Peter was removed. Peter saw the heart of God that he wanted to extend mercy and grace to the Gentiles too. And Peter ends his, kind of, uh, his speech, his, his, uh, what he expresses here, by saying, look, we are saved by the grace of Jesus and so too are the Gentiles. Let's not burden them. Let's not give them the homework that we, were, that we, were, uh, that we never were able to complete ourselves. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Notice here, there's a theme here. You have these elders that are present and they're listening to those who have shared their experiences firsthand of, of the Gentile salvation. There's humility, there's patience, there was compassion. I would imagine, and it's, it's, it's not explicit in the text, but I would imagine that not only are they listening to the stories of Peter and Paul and Barnabas, but they're listening to what God is reinforcing in their hearts as well. Finally, in verse 13, James, the biological brother of Jesus, who he's the current leader of the church in Jerusalem, stands up and speaks. And he quotes the prophets and then says in verse 19 to 20, Therefore my judgment... This is the compromise that he suggests. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Basically, he's saying, let's not burden the Gentiles with the entirety of the law. Let's just hold to some common themes here. Right, abstain from idolatry, sexual morality, and from eating the blood of, anim uh, of animals. I had a professor in seminary who called this, you know, kosher light. Because it was just a, you know taking your foot off the, the pedal a little bit. And, you know, you could argue that it's like Paul says, this contradicts what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, where he says that we can eat meat sacrificed to idols. But, but I think here it's not necessarily saying that this is the, the, how every Christian has to live for all of eternity, but acknowledging that these, for these Jewish Christians, like, this was radical. All of a sudden, you know, you haven't, you know, eaten, uh, you've eaten kosher your entire life, and all of a sudden it's like you want to take you know, rip the band-aid off entirely. And so I think, I think James's suggestion was, like, let's, let's ease into this for the consciences of our brothers and sisters, which Paul would agree with in 1 Corinthians 8, right? If it hurts my brother's conscience, I'll never eat meat again. Anyway, that's a, a little bit of a tangent. Verse 22 brings the episode to a close. The whole council of elders and apostles agreed on this decision, and so they sent Paul, Barnabas, and some other missionaries with a letter, right, to, to proclaim this decision that was made in Jerusalem. Now, I think that this is a phenomenal example of what this practice of guidance looked like in an ideal sense, right? Because the goal here was unity. The leadership rejected anarchy, 
They weren't okay with everyone just doing whatever they wanted to do. Right? It wasn't a, a, a choose-your-own-adventure. But they didn't err on the opposite side with totalitarianism, where one person and authority makes all the decisions and kind of steamrolls everyone else. They didn't even succumb to democracy. And we, we, we think of, you know, in American civilization, we think democracy is pretty great, and it is pretty great compared to some other uh, governmental systems of the world. But we also see how democracy can fail. This wasn't just a majority position. This wasn't just a, you know, a, a, a place that drummed up 51% of the vote to pass. What came out of this council was a message of unity. The leaders of the church had been willing to listen, not just to one another, but the guidance of the Holy Spirit to determine what is the best way to resolve this major conflict in the infancy of the church. Now, this is clearly an idealized case. There are plenty of times where you're not going to, you know, your, your process of discernment isn't going to end with unanimous decision. I mean, we are limited by our finitude. In fact, in fact if you keep reading uh, on the heels of this in chapter 15 of Acts, you see uh, Paul and Barnabas have a bit of a falling out. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, or the author of the Gospel of Mark, on one of their journey. Uh, their journey back, but Mark had earlier in ministry abandoned Paul and Barnabas, and you know, Paul's, Paul still seems to be a little salty over it. And so they have enough of a divide that Barnabas and Mark go one way, uh, and Paul and Silas go another. I, I don't think this necessarily means that they're antagonistic towards each other, but it's, a, it's an example that there are times where there might be different interpretations of the will of God in the moment. We do have some limits. Sometimes we just see things differently which means that as we're trying to pursue something like guidance, it's crucial that we lean into the virtues, things like humility, things like tenderness, compassion, understanding with one another. I mean, this, this is one of the dangers of guidance, especially in an organizational sense, that because there's always the opportunity for, for someone, a leader, to use guidance as manipulation, not, not really listening to the Spirit, but just saying, hey, you know what? This is what I'd like to have happen, and I've heard from the Lord. And if you're in a position of authority, that's, people listen to that. And so we need to make sure that we are going, approaching this with humility. Because guidance is not about just us imposing our own will. I mean, e e even, if, you know, even if this is just you in your own life, and you're trying to hear from the Lord, you, know, you should never do that as a way to just stamp God, try to stamp God's approval on what you want to do anyway. It's very easy to do that, to sanctify our wills. I would say it, as we're, you know, a litmus test for this, as we're trying to think about what is God communicating to us right now, the primary constraint we need to consider is that we need to stay within biblical norms. As the Holy Spirit speaks to us, He will not contradict what God has revealed in the Scriptures. Richard Foster reminds us that Scripture needs to pervade and penetrate all of our thinking and acting. And so if we find ourselves trying to pursue this, you know, hearing from the Lord, listening to God, and, and finding a leading that goes against what the Bible teaches, I'm going to say there's one of two things happening right here. Either the guidance that we have received is not authentic, 
Perhaps it's an instance where we're limited by our own imperfections that we, you know, maybe our selfishness in a certain area is carrying the day and we just really want, we, you know, it's, it's not like God's heart that we're listening to, but our own hearts. That, that happens all the time. But another one that I just want to throw out there is that there is, an, there is an option that if what you receive from the Lord seems to contradict Scripture, it's possible that what you've received from the Lord actually could be correct but what it contradicts is not the Bible, but your interpretation of the Bible. If we find ourselves in a position where there is this tension that we're experiencing between those two things, what, what we feel like the Spirit is communicating to us and what we read in the Bible, it would be, we would do our best, again, with humility, to take some time to sit in that tension. Right? Investigating what are the presuppositions that I'm bringing to going to God in repentance just to ensure that I'm not just putting my own will out here. Because, you know, when we read the Bible, this is, a, this is a document from thousands of years ago that we are doing our best to read into the original culture, but sometimes there's things we miss, you know, that, that we, we kind of stamp on Paul something that Paul never actually meant to say. And so sometimes we might experience that. I mean, and we, we do this all the time, right? Like, we as a church want to lean into the freedom of Jesus, right? broadly evangelical. I know evangelical is kind of a, a negative word in, in our society from a political perspective, but, you know, evangelicalism kind of pushes back against that fundamentalism uh, of, of the, uh, the early 20th century. You know, the, the one was like, you know, don't, how do they say it, you know, don't uh, smoke, drink, or do, or chew, or run with girls that do, something like that, you know, like, don't go to R-rated movies, don't do this. Like, I, I don't see the Bible teaching some of those things. So, if, if I have, anyway, I'm, I'm getting lost in the weeds. But I think you get the point, that there might be times where we need to rethink our interpretation and go back to the scriptures, not just say, hey, this is what I want the Bible to say, but what does the scripture actually say in this, in this moment? 1 John 4, chapter 4, verse 1 tells us this, beloved, do not believe every spirit. So there's this point where we might be listening to things that aren't actually from God, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And there's a lot of them in our day and age. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty harsh on prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen. I think that's a false prophet, but again, neither here nor there right now. I think in light of this, we can utilize some of these other dis- disciplines that we've been studying uh, to increase the credibility of what we hear, right? We can pursue meditation. We can pursue prayer, solitude, fasting. That can help quiet our hearts so that we can hear more clearly what God is saying. You know, if you're moving at a million miles an hour, I doubt you're hearing from God accurately. I'm just going to put that out there. I mean, in my own life, if I'm trying to multitask, you know, like I'm washing the dishes and my kids are talking to me, like I'm really not picking up what they're putting down. I'm distracted. And so if I can't even in that moment hear my kids accurately, I'm definitely not hearing God accurately in those points. So these other spiritual disciplines can slow us down. You know, confession can help clear those barriers that exist because of our sin between us and God, so that we can have better fidelity uh, of God, of what he's saying. Study can guide us deeper into the texts so that we can, you know, test that interpretation that we have. Right, the goal, the discipline, all of these, they work with one another to help us connect with God so that we can be in the best possible place to experience his transformation, because that's the goal, transformation, sanctification. All right, let me, let me kind of start to wrap up here with a few concrete examples of what this, I have three for you this morning. Just three simple ways 
of how to think about guidance in your life. So the first is this. Do not trust yourself. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt labels one of the great untruths. He wrote a book called The um, Coddling of the American Mind. Phenomenal book. I would highly recommend it to everyone. And there are three great untruths, he calls. And one of them, he says, that our current culture tells us is to always trust your feelings. That's kind of the message we receive. Whatever you feel, that is what is, that's truth. And he says that's not, that's not actually true. Uh, you know, our feelings are an essential part of who God made us to be, but they are not infallible. And so if you're trying to make decisions, if you're trying to discern the will of God, don't do it alone. Who are the other brothers or sisters in the faith that you can go to in humility to help you discern God's will? Virgil Vogt of Reba Fellowship, a Mennonite fellowship, said this, quote, if you cannot listen to your brother, you cannot listen to the Holy Spirit. I think there's some wisdom in that. I'm sure many of you have heard of the great Christian mystic St. Francis of Assisi. And there was a time in his life where he reached a fork in the road. He stated, quote, that he was in great agony of doubt, right? This is one of these people that we kind of put on a pedestal, holy people, you know, knew God. But he didn't know with precision what God was calling him to. Should he focus his ministry on contemplation or should he transition into more of a preaching ministry, right? Should he continue to, to live as a recluse, trying to discover these mysteries of God, or should he turn his attention to sharing the love of God with others through missions? Both were noble callings, but he didn't trust himself alone in prayer to make that decision. And so he, he enlisted the help of two of his friends, Sister Claire and Brother Sylvester, and he asked them, hey, you guys go to the Lord in prayer and come back with what God tells you. And so they go away for some time, and they come back with the same answer that St. Francis should transition to a a vocation of preaching. And uh, tradition says that St. Francis jumped up and said, so let's go in the name of the Lord and kind of set off immediately. Uh, I guess his bags were already packed, or maybe as a a, monk, he didn't really have bags to pack, but he immediately set off to to, to missions. So he didn't trust himself to hear from God, and so he wanted, right, the testimony of two witnesses, kind of what we see in the Old Testament. He sought out friends to help him discern God's moment, or God's, God's plan for that moment in his life. And I don't know, may, maybe you don't have like a life-altering decision where you're just kind of derailing your vocation, but sometimes having a sounding board is helpful, uh, John Mark Comer, he's a pastor up in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, wrote a fan- fanta- he's written a number of good books. Uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is real good, and he talks in it about a discipline where he and his friend, uh, close friend, share each other's family annual budgets. And, and they share those budget with w- budgets with one another so that they can hold each other accountable to how they spend their money. Right, Tim Keller used to say that you can find out what someone values by looking at their bank statement, looking at their credit card statement, because we put our resources into the things that we value. And so having a friend who helps us with our budgets can be a way that we listen to God's voice. We can hear what God might be calling us, how we should allocate these resources that we have. I mean, even beyond that, John Mark Comer and his friend have an agreement that they will not spend over $1,000 without first consulting the other and getting their approval. This is like unheard of in our generation, right? Because we're individualistic. It's my money. I 
I earned that. I can spend it however I want to spend it. But this is, th- this is a way for John Mark Comer to listen, not just to listen to God himself, but to invite a friend to have s- share some in that discernment. All right, here is number two. Church business meetings. Foster argues that these business meetings should be like a worship service. It, that these business meetings, yes, can be a time to give facts and data, you know, thinking of like church budgets or ministry outcomes, upcoming programs, but it's also a time for the community to listen to the voice of God. Now, as I was, you know, going through this, I was like, you know, we, don't, we really don't have any of these business meetings. Like, maybe this is something that we should implement. You know, maybe we, our fiscal year runs from July 1st to, to June 30th, and so maybe when that's done, like, we can have like a, you know, state of the Restoration Community Church where we can celebrate what God's done. We can listen to what He might be drawing us to, calling us to. A beautiful example of this in American history is with the gathering of the Quakers. Uh, that's the tradition that Richard Foster comes from. But in 1758, they were in a, a, a congregational meeting, right? So they sent representatives from all the different Quaker churches to Philadelphia to have this meeting. And John Woolman and others had their consciences pricked by God because of their involvement in the legacy of slavery in our country. So this is 1758. Slavery would have been an assumed and expected part of pre-American culture. And so this took guts for this religious body to push back against this cultural tide, to acknowledge the demonic heritage of slavery. And this congregation fell in unity over this issue. And it wasn't just pastors from the north. I mean, this was from kind of the, the U.S. at that point. And they took it a step further where slaveholding members were not only to free their slaves, but to reimburse their slaves for the time in bondage. Right? The Quakers here did something of the likes of which our national heroes like Washington and Jefferson could never bring themselves to do. By the time that our nation declared its independence, these followers of Jesus Christ had completely, by listening to the voice of God, had completely freed themselves from the institution of slavery. What would it look like for God to grab a hold of a church, a denomination, a people of God to shake some of these sinful institutions that exist in our time to the core? That we would be a light to the darkness that's blinded the minds of generation, right? Guidance through this discerned word of God is going to be what motivates us to take drastic action, not just for the glory of God, but for the good of our neighbor. So what does it look like for these institutions, church business meetings, or organizations to listen to what God has called them to and is calling them to? Lastly is this, is to find, this is something you're interested in, find a spiritual director. Now, a, a spiritual director is not the same thing as a therapist, but there might be some overlap in those roles def- depending on the faith background of your therapist. But a spiritual director seeps, seeks to help train us into that presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can hear that voice and direction of God. The purpose of a spiritual director is to lead souls into God's plan, not their own plan. They're a conduit for God's presence in our lives. And so if, you, you know, if you're coming into this and listening to this message and thinking like, this is kind of new to me, this is kind of foreign, like this sounds great to hear God's voice, but I like, don't have a clue where to start with that. A spiritual director can help you begin that process. 
help you learn how to do that discipline. You know, it's kind of like if you go to the gym and you don't know where to start with like, you know, all right, I want to I wanna have like full body fitness, you know. Do you, ever, do you ever see those like videos or memes of people at Planet Fitness like completely using the machines like the wrong way? I mean, it's like that, right? We, we, can, we can try to do this and completely be off the deep end doing it. But you would get like a, a, a personal trainer, right? They have a lot of staff at Planet Fitness that if you just ask them like, how do I use this machine? You know, they'll, they'll actually show you the right rhythms and, and, and uh, postures to use. And so a spiritual director is kind of like that. A, a good friend of mine, Johnny Cagwin, he and I trained for the, the CCO uh, together 17 years ago. He's still with the CCO, but he, he's a spiritual director. And he's with the Evangelical Spiritual Directors Association, or ESDA. And, you know, they have a, it's a national uh, network, national association, and they've got, I think, like eight spiritual directors here in the Pittsburgh area. And so if it's something that you're interested in pursuing more, their website is graftedlife.org. I'm not sure, I guess ESDA was probably already taken, but graftedlife.org, and you can search their website by zip code and find a spiritual director that can help you. You know, and it's not something you have to like, someone you have to go to forever in the same way that if you have a nutritionist, hopefully they teach you the rules so that you can, you know, eat healthy and then you don't need them anymore because you, you put those things into practice. But guidance is a discipline that allows us together as the body of Christ to sense what God wants to communicate to a place. And so to close, we're going to do something a little bit different um, you know, I'm going to share the reflection questions in a moment, but after so, I, I want us as a congregation to be still. To listen in this place that if there might be something that God wants to tell us. Maybe God is giving one of you a word for the Lord. We'll have some background music playing, but I want to quiet our hearts to sense what the Holy Spirit might be saying. And, and if you feel like you've heard from God, that you feel like God's put something on your heart to share with this place, we got a microphone right down here. And, 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 you know, feel free to come up front. And I know, like, this is probably a little bit outside of the, the normal for our church experience. It's, it's a little uncomfortable for me as well to think about this way, because I'm, I'm such, again, so cerebral in that. But this is a practice that we see littered throughout Scripture, and I think it's important for us to be faithful to that. So while it is out of the ordinary for our congregation, there's going to be some growing pains uh, as we learn to hear the voice of God. And so I'll just say this is kind of the last way of introduction. Like, don't feel the need to force it. It's okay if there is silence uh, and the silence might feel uncomfortable. Like, don't just come up here to say something that's on your mind because you're just, like, uncomfortable with the silence. It's okay to sit in that tension. But if you really feel like God's laid something on your heart, like, be bold. Don't be shy because our congregation, we need to hear it. So let me give you some, some questions, and then we'll pray, and then we'll listen for the Holy Spirit to move. So here's my, my first question for us to consider this week. Why do you think guidance is listed as a corporate discipline? I think this is important, as I said, that we often think about this in individualistic terms to hear from the Lord, but it's really important for us to think about it and consider it in, in the realm of community. Second, what are some elements necessary to reach the level of unity that we find in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15? In order for that to happen, how does God need to show up and how do we need to live our lives? And lastly, just to think through, what is the decision that you have to make that you could invite some friends to help you discern God's will? Instead of just going, you know, at point number one, never, don't just trust yourself. 
but who are, think of what a decision might be and some people that you can invite into that. Let me pray and then we will uh, open up the floor for the, the Spirit. God, may we quiet our hearts and souls that we would hear the words that you would speak to us. Lord, that as we come into this place, we believe you to be active here. And acknowledging that we know we are not perfect people, pray that you would speak to us, meet us here again so that we would either know how you would have us change or that you would encourage us in the things that we're doing well. And so Lord, as, as we turn this, consecrate, I'll, I'll use that word, as we consecrate, sanctify this time for you, may we not be distracted, we, may we not be checking our phones or the time or thinking about what we're going to do or eat for lunch once we're done here, but that we would truly be able to clear our minds to listen for you. And so God, help us to purge away the noise that we can have your active, direct, immediate communication of the Holy Spirit here in this place. Pray this in Christ's name.